Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for checking us out today. This is episode number 67 of The Next Track. Today we're going to be talking about one of Kirk's favorite topics, The Grateful Dead. Now, if like me, you're not a dyed-in-the-wool deadhead, I think at the very least you'll gain some insight into one of their most famous performances, that took place at Cornell University in 1977, known simply by its date, 5877. We're going to be talking about its significance to fans of the band and the almost mythic quality it's taken on. And to get into all that, we are pleased to have with us author Peter Connors, who has written Cornell 77. It's a book that chronicles the incredible story of the show and its history. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Peter has written a fascinating book. And as all regular listeners know, I'm a dedicated deadhead. And I became a deadhead in late April 1977, the first time I saw the band at the Palladium in New York. And Peter has written a book entitled Cornell 77, which is about one single concert, but a mythical concert from May 8, 1977. What gave you the idea to write about one single concert? Uh, to be honest, I was approached by Cornell. Um, Cornell University Press got in touch with me. Um, I think that they had they had been speaking to another author named Peter Richardson, who's written um, good books about the dead as well, and um, is out in California and does a lot of California history and and I think some sociology and things like that. Um, and he suggested to them that they should get in touch with me. And of course, you know, I've been a deadhead since the mid 80s. So, I, you know, I was familiar with the Cornell show, of course, you know, and how fantastic it is. And also just the sort of legends attached to it. Um, it hadn't, you know, it didn't occur to me that that would be a good um, topic for a book. And in fact, even when Cornell approached me, it didn't occur to me that that would be a good topic for a book. Um, I sort of said, like, that's crazy. You know, like you want me to do a whole book about a single concert. You know, what am I supposed to say? And so and, and they were Michael McGandy, uh, my editor there, and uh, was the one who called me and sort of, you know, sort of, I guess, wooing me a little bit on the project because I was very lukewarm on it. Um, Dean Smith uh, is the publisher at Cornell University Press. He had recently been hired and he's a deadhead and, and a very savvy guy. And he was so was, of course, well aware, you know, he talks about when he did his interview for the job at Cornell University Press, um, you know, he went by Barton Hall and he made sure to make a stop at Barton Hall. So he immediately said, you know, this would be a great thing for our press to do for us to step up and acknowledge that somebody should and why not us. Um, and so from there, they got in touch with me and so forth. And and it was really a process of me saying, like, I don't think. I want to do that, you know, and then they would say, well, if you did it, you know, what would you do? And I go, well, I guess I would do this. You know, I would probably start to talk to the people who put on the concert. And then I might talk about, you know, the other shows of that era and why the 70s were special. And before I knew it, I had signed a contract and I was obligated to write this book, um, which I ended up, of course, thrilled to do because it turned out to be, you know, a ton of fun. And for me, I'd written other books. I wrote a book called Growing Up Dead. Um, it's about touring with the band myself in, in the 80s and early 90s. And um, then I did another book that was an oral history of the jam band scene called Jamerica, which also put me in touch with all, all sorts of folks around that scene and band members and so forth. Um, so it was fun to jump back in. And I, I realized, you know, 
I have all these people that I can just sort of shoot notes to now and, and ask them questions and get interviews and get feedback and stuff like that. So it was, it was nice for me to, you know, a good chance also to reconnect with a bunch of friends who have been traveling the same road. It's a fascinating book. And, you know, I was thinking there, there have been books written about single albums. And we had Will Romano on a few weeks ago who wrote a book about Yes is Close to the Edge. Several people have written about Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. And, you know, when you think about the idea of something that reductive, you tend to be worried that it's too limited. But in all of the cases, you get the before, the during, the after, the, the, the sort of legacy of the album or the concert and all that. So you have a ton of material to write about. It's worth pointing out that the publication of this book coincides with the first ever official release of this concert by the Grateful Dead as a standalone album on CD and download, a vinyl album, and as one of four concerts in a box set, which contained concerts from the 5th, 7th, 8th, and 9th. If you were able to get the limited edition box set, you got a copy of the book in the set, which is how I got mine, because I buy all the limited edition Grateful Dead releases. You mentioned in the book, and for, for people who don't know, this is one of the best-known Grateful Dead concerts. And, and I think the top three best-known concerts would be 21470, 82772, and 5877. But there's a particular reason why this is best-known. Sure, yeah. And I mean, those, you know, each one you mentioned is sort of famous for its own reasons. And, and of those, I probably listened to the 213, you know, 214 show the most. Because um, that dark star is just, you know, beyond belief. And I mean, e you know, each one sort of typifies an era of the band and a certain sound that they had, you know, mastered at that time. And I think one of the interesting things about the Grateful Dead, you know, in general, is that they did have so many different phases. You know, they had this this real sort of bluesy, swampy 60s era, you know, sound with Pigpen and so forth. Um they had, um, you know, very psychedelic and a sort of experimental sound where there'd be these long spaces between music and then the sort of weird sound would come out of nowhere and so forth. So, you know, much more experimental. Of course, they had these real Americana phase, you know, with American Beauty and Working Man's Dad and these acoustic sets they would do. And, um, you know, I think that the late 70s, the mid to late 70s is interesting um, for lots of different reasons, but the sound was was much jazzier. Um, it was they had they had figured out how to take those long jams that they'd done before and channel the the improvisational energy that went into those into these musical passages between songs, and they had really mastered that. Um, so you have something like this Scarlet Fire that happens at Cornell. These two songs, Scarlet Begonias and Fire on the Mountains, Fire on the Mountain which are both fantastic songs, but when people tend to talk about Cornell and the Scarlet Fire, what they're really talking about is a transition between those two songs um, and how fantastic that is and improvisatory. And, um, you know, it really tapped into some things that the Grateful Dead did best. Um, and Jerry Garcia in particular was somebody who loved those middle sections between songs. And the reason they worked so well is because of his lead playing. You know, the, he was willing to go into those spaces. He could lead the band through them, but also follow other people through them as well. You know, he didn't have to be the screaming solo or, you know, soloist going through these passages. He knew how to lead, but also in a lot of times to lead from behind, you know, and sometimes the drums would be playing the lead and sometimes you know, Phil Lesh, the, the phenomenal lead bass player, you know, they would, they would be following Phil. So 
I think, um, you know, for, for many reasons, the Cornell show became famous um, because it highlighted a lot of those um, real powers that the Grateful Dead had perfected at that point in time. But it's in the middle of three shows, the seventh, eighth, and ninth, and you say in your book that all three shows are extraordinary. But isn't it the availability of the 5877 tape among traders that gave it its mythical status early on? Yeah, well, I think that's why it became, you know, sort of quote unquote, the most famous, you know, Grateful Dead concert. And I think that that holds true. You know, originally when we were talking about subtitles for the book, one that was proposed to me that I didn't agree with was the best Grateful Dead concert, you know, ever, which is like, forget it. I, I, won't, I won't even go there. But I would say the most famous. Um, a lot of people are Woodstock. So you might say, well, the Grateful Dead played at Woodstock, and why isn't that their most famous? But it's not. Um, Cornell is, and, and one of the reasons it is is because there were so many good quality recordings um, that were made available, that were passed around. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons for that also is, for, first of all, there was really good quality um, recordings of it, and that wasn't the case with every show. Um, so between, you know, a couple tapers in the audience who did really high quality and then also Betty Cantor Jackson, who was the official sound person for the Grateful Dead doing a really high quality soundboard recording of the show, um, they made it into circulation and got passed around and it became the kind of thing where it was like, you've got to hear this, you know, right away. And one of the things I love about the Grateful Dead is, you know, it's always the story of like somebody's big brother or their roommate, or their cousin, or somebody was like completely corrupted these children by giving them Grateful Dead tapes, you know, like, you gotta listen to this. And the next thing they know, they woke up five years later in a VW surrounded by cassettes, you know? Um, and Cornell was one of those concerts that people said, you have to listen to this, and they would put it in people's hands. And I think one of the reasons for that too is it's a very accessible show. It's a very good, 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 great, Grateful Dead concert. Um, but it also touches on a lot of different flavors that the band, you know, play. And so there's like, you know, Mama Tried or there's Road Jimmy. There's this dancing in the streets that, you know, goes on for like 22 minutes um, and is very sort of funk, funky. You know, it sounds like a 70s type song um, and, and it's got this good funk groove to it. Um, and then there are the Space Year, the Scarlet Fires. And, and then there's this epic morning dew at the end. Um, that is really a legendary morning do. And, and again, one of these things where you can say, yeah, that's that could be the best one. I, I think, you know, it's arguably the best morning do that the band played out of many, many morning dues, hundreds. Um, so I think that was part of it. I think it was something that, that people could give to somebody and say, this is the Grateful Dad. Listen to it. You know, make sure you turn on this song because you'll really dig this one. And that could have been any different style of song. I try and do the same thing with the band when I'm when I'm you know if I want somebody to understand I think about where they're coming from and what music they like and then I can give them you know a track or or a concert or something that I know will turn them on because the dead touched on that style that they happen to dig. As you say, the popularity of the tape popularized the actual show, and I'm curious about why the tape sounds as good as it does. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of dead tapes. But judging from the handful I've ever heard, they can vary in quality quite a bit, either because the recording is inferior or the band had an off night or whatever. But this show clicks both as a performance and a recording. Do you know what recording techniques were used? What What's Betty Cantor's secret? Yeah, so I am far from being an equipment person. I'm not a tech person at all, so I, I, I hesitate to even go there. I will tell you that in the course of writing the book, 
Um, I had the good fortune to interview Betty Cantor, and she talks at length, and it's in the book, about her actual stage setup, what she used and the snake she used. and um, she. But, but essentially, I mean, what she was able to do was set up her sound mix so that what she was recording was completely aside from whatever sound was coming out of the stage toward the audience, right? Which isn't uncommon. That's a soundboard recording. But she really was was listening um, from the fans' perspective. She had been recording uh, The Grateful Dead and also Jerry Garcia, who she was very close to. She did a lot of Jerry Garcia recordings on her own as a taper. You know, she just wanted the recordings. She would listen to them back with Jerry and so forth. But she was a fan. And so she it's interesting when she talks about recording Cornell specifically, but in general, her recording technique, she says, you know, I knew that as a fan, where you wanted to be was standing right in the middle of the stage, surrounded by that music. You didn't want to hear what everybody could hear in the audience. You wanted to hear what it st- sounded like standing in the middle. So that's what I mixed to. And if in the audience, you know, there was too much drums or there was too much bass or something like that, you know, I took care of all that. So she had these mixes that I think are genuinely like what the fans want to hear. You know, it's like we're really curious what it would sound like like that so she listened like we do frankly and um and then you know on top of that she had all the levels she had all you know the best equipment that they could get at that time um she was isolated off stage in another room so she wasn't even watching what the band did and she wasn't overwhelmed by the audience noise either that's it she was really sitting there like a recording engineer just you know tweaking levels and listening to what was going on and and so that comes through and i think you end up with this incredible quality recording that is you know the grateful dead that that fans want to hear and people you know her the betty we call them betty boards um you know betty Cantor jackson soundboard recordings it got shortened to betty boards and for a lot of people, like, that is the gold standard of live Grateful Dead recordings. And so now what you'll see um, with the, the box set uh, that, that Rhino just released and some that are coming out now still um, is Betty was the original, you know, uh, she, she did the original recording. And then, of course, they take him and master him and so forth. But um, they were her original recordings. There, there's actually an interesting there's an interesting story about this particular recording. It circulated in soundboard for a while, and then it kind of disappeared, and it wasn't in the Grateful Dead's vault. And it got to the point where some people, even Bob Weir said jokingly, well, this concert never happened. There were all these weird rumors about it. And the actual, the original master tape was only found a couple of years ago. So that that is mainly on track. Um, they actually knew where it was, and it was not in the Grateful Dead's possession. Um let me see. And again, this is a story that, that covers a lot of ground um, in the book um, that I, I go into pretty good detail on it uh, and also talk to Betty about it. So you also get um, for the first time, really, anywhere you get Betty's you know story on what happened. But uh, the, the quick and dirty of it is that Betty was working for the band. Um, they parted ways. And Betty had all these recordings that she had done of, of the band. Um, she had to at some point put them in a storage locker at some point she um could not pay for that storage locker and so those things went up for public auction and word got out that this auction was going to happen and among you know a handful of people who really cared about this music um some people found out and so betty's recordings thousands of them 
were sold, uh, I think they had ended up being three different lots that got um, these the, the reels of her recordings. And two of the people really knew what they had, and, and quickly they returned to the Grateful Dead fold, back to their vault. Um, a whole bunch of them did not. And they were originally per purchased by that person who was not a Grateful Dead fan and, and not really a music fan because he thought they were in drum cases with the Steal Your Face Grateful Dead logo on it, and he thought they were kind of cool. So he bought them, not even bothering to look at what was inside, and stuck them in his barn. And there they sat for years and years, um, exposed to the elements and so forth. And then finally, you know, he sort of put together what was going on and what he had. And he called up, um, he eventually got in touch with this guy, Rob Eaton, who is in a band called Dark Star Orchestra. Um, and uh, that plays Grateful Dead music. And it's also, he's a phenomenal um, recording engineer in his own right. And Rob put in many, many, many hours to to figure out what could be restored from these and to actually restore them for us to listen to. And then the story goes from there about ownership of these recordings and how they got back into the Grateful Dead, um, Grateful Dead's archives, which just happened. And I will say when I started to write this book, um, I had gotten to know um, some of the folks at Rhino, including the president, Mark Pincus, who's a huge deadhead and a fantastic guy who I also interviewed for the book. And early on, he sort of said, like, and I knew they didn't have the tapes. I knew the gist of it, why they hadn't released them and so forth. And he said, well, when is the book coming out? And I said, it's for the 40th anniversary. And he said, okay, yeah, well, we're going to shoot for that then. But he didn't say anything more, and he wouldn't commit to anything. So I wrote the whole book. And this is a big part of, you know, the sort of interesting intrigue of Cornell 77, the band's most famous concert and the one they don't have the recording of and why is that and so forth. Um, I wrote the whole thing knowing that this might be happening, but I had to write it from the assumption that they still didn't have these. Ah, I didn't realize that because you do mention in the book that at the time of the writing, you hadn't heard the, the Grateful Dead's final remastering of the recording. Yes. So if you find like an early galley version of this book for, you know, for early promotion, it will not include the box that mentioned in there because I didn't know until after that yeah. point. So it was really like we had to stop the presses <laughs> and insert information about this new box set release. And it's, it was honestly, it's just because the negotiations lasted that long and Rhino just wasn't sure what they were going to do. But they knew um, they knew the book was coming out and they knew the 40th anniversary was coming up. I mean, I, to be honest, one of the cool things Mark Pink has said early on was, you know, it's nice that the 40th anniversary is coming up. The good thing about the Grateful Dead is we don't have to worry about anniversaries. You know, we're not a band that goes like, oh, it's the 25th anniversary of XYZ. Like, we, we just don't have to, you know, like that's and there would be too many, you know, there would just be too many milestones. So he said, we just record stuff, you know, release stuff when it's ready, when we think it's the best stuff possible. Um, and but in this instance, the 40th anniversary came together with when they were ready to release it. Um, and the box set is just gorgeous. It is, yeah. The design of these boxes has gotten so elaborate over the years. I have most of them. And, you know, the Europe 72 was in a sort of a steamer trunk. And the earlier May 77 was a bit similar to this one, a little bit smaller with these cutouts and, and fancy psychedelic covers. They're always really beautiful objects to own. And, and if you want to get them, you have to act really quickly because they sell. I think this one sold out in 24 hours. So you don't have much leeway. 15,000 copies and it sold out, yeah, maybe like 36 hours, something yeah. like that. I know within two days they were completely gone. 
And so, I mean, I had the great good fortune of, of having my book included in that box set, yep. which, you know, as an author, that is, I mean, yeah. they, they took 15,000 copies of this book and put it immediately in the hands of the people who would appreciate it most. I mean, yep. what an incredible boon, you know, to have. And then it went so fast and, you know, my head, I'm going, hey, can we do another, you know, 15,000? <laughs> but that's the idea of a limited edition, right? It's limited. So, yep. um, I frankly, I can't say enough about the folks at Rhino, just as far as, their, their curatorial skills when it comes to the archive of the Grateful Dead. And for everyone that I've dealt with there, like their passion for it, um, they really treat the stuff as deadheads would and they think about it like that and um, and go above and beyond when it comes to things like design and all these little details here, you know. my On the back of mine, and I don't know if it was a promotional one or how many of these they did or whatever, but the box sets were numbered. So if you open the little booklet inside, at some point, there's a number, right, up to 15,000. And, you know, so I talk to people, oh, I got 6,000, blah, blah, blah. So I I got mine, which took a while um, because I had to get everybody else's out, you know. And then I finally got mine and I flipped. And instead of a number, it just says miracle. So within the dead universe, you know, miracle is this special word, right? I need a miracle. And if people need a, t- a ticket, they might hold their finger up and say, I need a miracle ticket and all this stuff. So I'm like, you know. This is not That's some cool. faceless corporate entity. This is somebody who gets the culture that they're representing. And that's special. That, that doesn't always happen. So you've been to Barton Hall and you describe it as a pretty faceless, what would you call it, venue. It's, it's not a gymnasium, right? It's more of a... No, it was actually built for a military drilling. Uh, it was an ROTC center, you know, most recently. That's when it was the most active in the military. Um, it's, it's like, it's a hanger of kinds, you know what I mean? It's really, and now it's like a multi-purpose gymnasium or they have a basketball court and a track around it and so forth. So it's mainly for athletics now. Um, but for the bulk of its, its early life, especially it was for, for military exercises. Um, you know, the dead came what? back a, a couple of years later and it's a funny show to listen to. Apparently the, the story goes that I got, you know, is that Jerry Garcia, um, walked in and he called the place a toilet bowl. He said, you know, this sounds like a toilet bowl. And then when they did playing in the band that show, Bob, we are changed the lyrics to playing in the barn and actually saying them, not like as a joke backstage, like saying them during the concert is playing in the barn, which is pretty extreme because those guys played some pretty crappy sounding places for him to actually get in there and mess with the lyrics to say like, this is how bad the sound is in this place is, is pretty funny. That's what I was going to say. What What's interesting is that, you know, we were talking before about the quality of the recording. And I know from having seen the dead in, in a number of venues that some of them are great and some of them are okay. But when you hear these recordings, it sounds like you're in Carnegie Hall. It doesn't sound like a barn or or the Palladium or whatever venue, Madison Square Garden, you know, where I've seen them. It really is an amazing feat that Betty Cantor Jackson took the sound coming through the electricity and made something that the people there didn't hear. So no one actually heard this concert the way we can now on tape. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's it's just like anything, too. It's I, You know, I talked almost everybody I interviewed who went to the concert as fans said, you know, the best, like the most positive responses were. Yeah, I thought it was a good show at the time. You know, I really liked the morning too. I thought that was good. Or I liked, you know, I liked that they did Mama Tried. It was Mother's Day or something like that. And then you get that all the way from people going, I really didn't think it was a very good show at all. You know, I walked out. 
but every one of them goes. And then later on, when I got the tape, you know, when I got the recording and I listened back, I realized how good it was. And you have to chalk some of that up to the sound, you know, inside the venue at the time. It's, it's tough to really focus on the music when you're hearing echoes and, you know, and it is, it is by, by all accounts, if you go inside there, you can see why it would be a real bitch to get a good sound out of that place. You know, it's just, it's not set up for that at all. And I'm sure we've all seen concerts and sort of like gymnasiums and stuff like that, where it's, you know, as far as his bands, the Grateful Dead were um, very meticulous about their sound, you know, right from the start, getting the best possible sound was a deep passion for them. And I talked in the book quite a bit about um, Ousley Stanley or Bear, as he's called in the Grateful Dead family, and his quest to get the best sound, you know, his maddening quest to get the best sound out of the Grateful Dead that eventually led to this creation called the Wall of Sound, these, you know, incredible stacks with hundreds and hundreds of speakers and everything. But it was about getting the best possible sound to the audience. And that was something they were passionate about. So I'm sure it drove them nuts, too, to have to, like, you know, do their best within these certain environments because... You know, it, it mattered to them. And again, I go back to Rhino, how much these details matter to them. Like this stuff mattered to the dad. You know, they didn't they were getting out there to get their paycheck and go home. They wanted to have this experience with the audience. And that meant the purest sound on both sides. It's interesting that the dead's legacy has expanded so much in recent years and and rightly so since rhino started working with them they've released some extraordinary single releases and box sets and you you get the feeling that okay they've covered uh march 1969 and they've covered europe 72 and they've got 5877 but you can't help thinking that there's more in the vault that we're just not aware of that maybe these are concerts that the, the tapes didn't get out there back in the day and that they're going to keep surprising us until all the deadheads have you know gone away yeah well you know and, and david lemieux who is the chief archivist now for the grateful dead um again somebody i interviewed for the book and i tell his story but you know, speaking to him, you have somebody there who is, you know, came from being a deadhead um, and also has the mind of, you know, like a nuclear chemist or something like this, you know, nuclear physicist. He's he's a brilliant guy and he spends his time and energy figuring out which is the absolute, you know, best concert to release and what's the best way we can get the best version of that. He puts a very good mind to use in figuring these things out. And um is an encyclopedia of this stuff. So there's no doubt that, you know, there's a lot of gold in there still to be mined out. And he's listening show by show to figure out what that is. So chances are it's going to be some place that nobody ever thought of, you know, that's like, oh, okay, listen to this. You know, this is this is the best version of this particular thing that I've ever heard. Um, and, you know, they also have these amazing abilities to clean up what were otherwise considered, you know, muddy performances. And, and uh, you know, the... Um, the shows at the pyramids are a good example. Those 1978 shows that they played in Egypt, you know, were largely considered sort of fun. You know, it was like, oh, what a wild thing to do and what a trip. And they set up at the base of the pyramids and, um, you know, what a mystical, funky thing. The Bedouins are there. Um, but the sound was not good and they didn't play that well. And lo and behold, you know, they released these recordings that have all been cleaned up and they sound they sound great. And so you have this combination of this mythical concert, you know, this legendary concert that they played, 
but maybe had never really heard because the word on the street was they weren't that much to listen to. And exactly. then you get to actually yeah. hear it in this great quality. So I think they're really good at that too, of just sort of salvaging some things that otherwise would have gotten fallen by the wayside. That's what I'd always heard about the, the Egyptian shows, and I never bothered when I was trading tapes to try and get copies of them. And when they released it, as you say, the sound is really good, plus there's video of some of it, which, you know, given the scarcity of video of the early Grateful Dead days, um, you know, there's a handful of 1972, there's the October 74, um, there's 827-72, but I, there's not much video around 77, 78. Um, and obviously in the 80s and the 90s, you got a lot more. But in the old days, those these videos are, are rare treats that we didn't know existed. Yeah. I will say on YouTube, there is now a 77 show from the Capitol Theater. And I am think, I'm blanking on the exact day. I think it's June. Yeah. Just the end of the spring run before Mickey broke his arm. Right. And it's black and white and so forth. But it's it's really the whole show. And that's really yeah. there's one from Roosevelt, too, in 76. That was a makeup show. Um, that is a whole show that's available. There's some cool stuff on YouTube. You start like poking yeah, around things out. And that's really fun to do because I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's something about just seeing the interaction and seeing the guys and, you know, and uh, and a lot of times like the fun, it looks like they're having, you know, on stage at that at that point in time. And I think that's part of what made Cornell special as well. You know, I think the band had had taken a rest from the road. They had taken a break from touring. And in that break, they had all gone off and sort of done their own things and gone in their own directions. And I think Garcia in particular had played a lot with Merle Saunders. Um, and he'd done a lot of stuff with like Legion of Mary and it became Jerry Garcia band. And um, I can hear a lot. I love that stuff. I really do. I adore Legion of Mary. I, I really... Um, you know, I love Jerry Garcia band, but I especially love the Legion of Mary era stuff. And uh, you can hear that to me in the Cornell in the Cornell shows. But I think more than anything, you hear a group of guys who are really happy to be playing together again and who had decided not to do this in a touring way and then had consciously decided, you know, what, we actually do want to do this. You know, this is a really good thing, but we just want to strip it back down to where it was and we want to do it on our terms at our level. Um, in ways that, you know, uh, make us excited again. And so Cornell was, they had decided that, they had gone up to speed on it, and they were just really at full steam on that new sort of point of view and perspective of their playing. Yeah, they were really at a zenith in, in the spring of 77. They were really peaking. You know, they had a bunch of new material that they were playing. That was really, you know, a lot of it became these Grateful Dead classics at Terrapin Station, which they didn't play at Cornell, but they played a ton on that tour. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they had all this great new material that they were working out. So it was a really it was an exciting time for the band, for fans. And I think you can hear their enthusiasm come through those shows, too. And that's part of what makes it so special. Peter Connors, I want to thank you very much for joining us. There'll be lots of links in the show notes to uh, stuff about Peter's book, about this recording. You can buy it in a couple of different forms. And I think you can still get the box set in what they call the music-only version. So it's not with the fancy box, it's just the CDs. So, you know, even if you're not a deadhead, and if you're still listening to this podcast, it's hard to not be a deadhead, right? But even if you're not, listen to 5877. Listen to Doug. Well, I, I'm not a deadhead. I'm a casual dead listener at best, but I do love a good live recording, and I think even casual dead fans, or even just fans of this era in rock music, will really enjoy it. It's, it's really as good as they say. And, and as Peter said earlier, there's a wide variety of music, of styles, from, from the cowboy songs to the spaced out jams, and damn, that morning do at the end. It's just a mystical experience.
Peter, thanks so much for joining us. This has been great. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. It is now time to present our next tracks. What are you listening to, Kirk? My next track for this week is not going to be Grateful Dead because we've just spent a half an hour talking about the dead. I've been going back recently to what is one of my favorite all-time albums ever. It is called Musical Humors. It's music by Captain Tobias Hume, and it's played by Jordi Savelle. Tobias Hume was a 17th century English composer. He was technically a captain. I don't know much about his life. There's not much known. He composed a lot of music for solo viola da gamba. Now, some years ago, I actually played the viola da gamba for about a year. It's like a cello, but it has frets. So for someone like me who would play the guitar for a long time, it was relatively easy to get good intonation playing this because of the frets, and you don't your fingering doesn't have to be as precise as it does on the cello. And I used to love playing this music. It's intricate. It's not extremely difficult because I was able to play it, right? But... The 20 tracks on this album is just some of the most beautiful, heart-rending music of any kind that I've ever heard. Jordi Saval wasn't well-known when he recorded this in 1982, and he went on to become a very well-known performer, both of solo music and ensemble early music. I had the chance to hear him perform this music in London a couple of years ago, and the concert was horrible. It was terrible. He was in this tiny little theater that's next to Shakespeare's Globe. It was hot and uncomfortable. Someone actually passed out before the intermission. The sound was scratchy and it was terrible. And I've tried to eradicate that from my memory. And every once in a while, I put this album on and I think, wow, this guy had chops back in the 1980s and he was great. And I I don't know, you've just got to listen to this music. Now, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to this on Apple Music because the CD is out of print. Used copies are currently listed on Amazon at $62.50. It's a great album, but you don't need to spend that much. So you can listen to it on your favorite streaming service. Tobias Hume, Musical Humors, one of the greatest albums ever. What about you, Doug? I'm not only an insufficiently enthusiastic fan of The Grateful Dead, I feel that way about a lot of artists. For instance, Van Morrison. Now, I'm very respectful of Van Morrison's talent, his technique, how much he's beloved by fans and critics. I get all that. And I certainly wouldn't deny that he deserves all those accolades. But he just hasn't recorded that much that really grabs me until the album What's Wrong With This Picture, which is not a big fan favorite, apparently. It has some detractors. Maybe because it came out in 2003, just after Down the Road, which is a very well-liked Van Morrison album. This album, What's Wrong With This Picture, Sounds nothing like that album. In fact, it's unlike a lot of his albums, mostly because it's steeped in swing and R&B. Some of it even sounds like it was recorded in in the mid-50s. It's got swinging hot two-step, it's got laid-back blues, some pop, it's got a nice mix of sounds. It's just not as Van Morrison-y, if you will, as some of his other albums. So if you're not a Van Morrison fan, maybe you'll take a crack at this one. I like it a lot. Van Morrison, What's Wrong With This Picture, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.